Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Software Gone Wild, where we dive into the nuts and bolts of all the things that keep the internet running and make modern life possible for me and you and your grandma and the kids and everyone with a cell phone and all the other things that are connected. Today, we have a very interesting guest who has a compelling platform. Uh, I don't want to call it a product. It's more of a software platform that caught my eye about 18 months ago. Uh, it was brought up by a colleague and went and looked at it and I thought, oh, there's no way this could be what it says it is. And so been doing what I do, I gave it a fair bit of time and sure enough, it's exactly what it says it is and it's impressively feature rich. And that project is called FreeRouter, F-R-E-E-R-T-R, and it is primarily maintained by Chebo Mate. Hopefully I said that right. And he's here to talk about it today with us. So welcome. Welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. So this free router, one of the things that I really like to do is I like to find alternatives to whatever the incumbent or whatever the normal way of doing things is, because that uncovers a lot of deeper understanding of how things really work, right? When you, when you sort of go outside of your normal comfort zone and start poking around with things, it forces you to learn new ways to implement things and new understandings based around that. And I think that's what led me to your project. And I suspect that's what led you to sort of form it. So from a high level, can you explain to us what is FreeRouter? Let's start with that. Okay. Initially, it would become a software-based router uh, that uh, would uh, competition in a smaller uh, CPs, uh, let's say. But uh, as I started it in uh, Java, it quickly turned out that it uh, cannot uh, pick up uh, the speed boost uh, that we see in uh, from year to year. But uh, I didn't care about it. And I uh, quickly added uh, protocols and encapsulations, uh, and uh, the performance uh, was uh, far, far below the, even the smaller CPs. Then I moved uh, to one of my favorite customers. Uh, it's an NREN in Hungary. I hope you know what NREN is. Oh, uh, absolutely. I have spent okay, the majority of right. my career in NREN space. Okay, fine. So they, uh, I supported uh, their uh, router base uh, for five years before I, I moved uh, to them. And uh, we, we had a trust initially. Uh, so uh, quickly became, uh, so FreeRouter quickly became a root refactor here. It was uh, quite a big deal because it was, uh, at the time, it was uh, quite a fresh project. We can say uh, three or four years old. And uh, I uh, became the, the primary and the secondary root effector in a year. We kept uh, a third root effector uh, just to be able to compare the, the tables on the PE boxes. Um, FreeRutter have this feature that it can compare to IBGP peers, for example. So we kept the third one, but uh, after four or five additional years, we turned it off. So at the moment, uh, there is uh, only two free-router free instances, uh, uh, root refactoring instances. For this to happen, uh, for sure, I, I must have uh, acquired a stable BGP. And uh, uh, in Hungary, the NREN uses OSPF here. So I needed uh, quite a quite stable OSPF also. 
this is a small endran here, but uh, we have a bigger uh, endran in Europe uh, level. Uh, it's called the Giant. Uh, it's much like uh, ESnet uh, in in the States, uh, as far as I know. And I was propagated uh, to some Giant projects, and they uh, get known about uh, FreeRouter. And uh, I think uh, one and a half year ago. I became a project member in a, in a very interesting uh, uh, project in Jant that is uh, white box switching. And uh, we got some P4 boxes around. And uh, the project goal is, is to make some uh, routing efforts on it. And uh, as I am a, a project member, so, so we quickly ported FreeRouter. Uh, it, is, it is quite tricky because, uh, first of all, we, we had to master the P4 language. We had uh, to make a data plane, uh, a real data plane, uh, to, to a real uh, ASIC or NPU. Uh, we can say it's it's an NPU because it's programmable. And we had to make uh, an intermediate uh, language. Uh, initially, I, I didn't want to talk directly to the P4 boxes. This is why we, we introduced uh, that intermediate, uh, we can say, uh, program or translator that uh, gets the tables from FreeRouter directly and translates it to the P4 ASIC tables. And that finally, it turned out that it was quite a good decision because uh, as I had some spare time in the project, I started to experiment with the DPDK. And, uh, <laughs> and finally, this project uh, it is not yet finished uh, because we have two more years. But uh, now I have two uh, very good data planes. We can say three. Because uh, I have the P4 data plane that is uh, 6.4 terabits per second uh, at the moment, and uh, they are cooking a 10 terabit uh, version of the chip. And uh, I also got uh, a working DPDK uh, data plane uh, that is uh, for some 10 gigabits. And finally, the same forwarding code that I used in DPDK uh, can be compiled with the libpcap and that the data plane is for some gigabits. So <laughs> this is the three external data planes I have over the already existing open flow. Wow, there's a whole lot to unpack there. <laughs> so <laughs> let's go all the way back to the beginning and define a couple things. So an NREN, for those who may not be familiar, is a national research and education network. So most you know countries have one. They exist all over the world. They typically run connectivity for research facilities, universities, and other you know other research type of uh, endeavors. And in Europe, you know, there's obviously a whole bunch of them. And you're saying that you were working at one of those, and you, so you decided to build this. Free router project, which is by definition a routing platform. And if folks go to the free router, F-R-E-E-R-T-R.net, you can look at the astounding number of what are labeled as features, but the protocol support on this is insane. You know, it has everything from IPv4, IPv6, SRTE, beer, PSEP. It supports IPX. I mean, it's, <laughs> it is a who's who of every protocol. You, it's got WireGuard support and it runs, it's available as a, as a, either a binary or a image that you can put in a virtualization platform. There's a bunch of different versions and I've done this. I've run it in Eve and I've run it in different things. And so you're saying that you wrote this and it very quickly became pushed into production as uh, an IX router. Is that correct? Yes, FreeRouter started uh, as I wasn't satisfied with any of the existing routing platforms. 
most of them lacked very, very basic features and a lot of VRF awareness things. And so I was very dissatisfied with them. This was the start. And after that, I moved to the end and it became a root effector quickly. And then nowadays, we have more than five instances running at various hundreds in Europe. Mostly it's uh, picking up the IGP and uh, generates alarms and so on from the IGP for that it got. So this is the current usage. Okay, so you're telling me if I want to, I can run IPX inside of a VXLAN inside of an SRTE path based on a handful of free router devices existing in the network somewhere. Yes, you can do. So basically, FreeRouter is written in Java. And uh, between the encapsulations, I use a very strict uh, interfaces within FreeRouter. And I have a lot of uh, tunnel over tunnel test cases that ensure that I do it correctly internally. So I'm pretty sure that you can route uh, <laughs> IPs over a week and uh, advertised by eVPN, for example. But yes, uh, the more interesting part is uh, when it uh, came to the top lane and what I can export. So in data plane, I have no uh, IP support <laughs> because it's a very legacy protocol. <laughs> right, right, obviously. But I mean, the fact that you spent the time to sort of understand it and pushed it in here, there's obviously a, a lot of care and feeding that's gone into this because you have to go out of your way to learn the inner workings of a lot of these advanced, what I would consider to be, you know, sort of carrier space protocols. And some of these, you know, when I first started looking at this, some of these were brand new. Like, you know, SRTE was pretty new when, you know, two years ago. Beer is even not released at all. <laughs> right. I, I mean, uh, beer is a very good RFC and uh, I, I have a uh, fine support for it, but uh, I have no, uh, any knowledge of, uh, of commercial uh, brand that, uh, that pushes uh, beer uh, in production. Okay, I can do it in software uh, and, and currently not in data plane also, but uh, <laughs> but it's not too hard to have. The more interesting part is the control plane for it, and it's ready and, and uh, works by the RFC. Okay, I have no interworking tests uh, for it at the moment because I have no, no one to test against, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it will be okay because <laughs> in Wireshark, uh, the pockets looks fine. But the rest are interworking tested. I mean that uh, I have uh, more than 2,000 tests and uh, more than uh, 200 uh, interworking tests. That is, I spin up uh, a Juniper and a Cisco and, and another Cisco and another Juniper in, in a VM and I push the config to them and uh, bring up also the free router counterparts and, and uh, try to ping through and uh, bring up the protocols and so on and uh, this ensures that uh, all the protocols that are available, both in FreeRouter and, and the big vendors that are interworking. Right. So that's a nice segue into what I wanted to get into next, right? So we've established that, you know, there's a whole bunch of really interesting and sort of, you know, advanced protocol support in this platform. You know, just look at the list. You cut that list in half and it's still impressive. But I think it's important to note that not only are these being built into it. So let me take a step back. So when I want to look at something new, you know, usually what I'll do is I'll grab it and I'll read the documentation, see whatever's out there. And I'll maybe ask a couple of colleagues, have you seen this? Have you ever used it? Do you know anybody that does? And then I'll go and I'll try to do it myself, right? I want to see it work myself. I want to see if I can break it. And that's what I did. And I didn't really realize that like 
I mean, I, I read it, but I didn't necessarily realize that you actually have an extensive set of testing that happens for releases and when protocols are built and things like that. So, I mean, is it like a CI/CD pipeline on the back end that you're testing this with? These test runs uh, are executed uh, more uh, a day. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I have some big servers that can uh, execute the whole uh, test uh, cases in, in 10 minutes. Okay, uh, not, not the interworking ones, uh, those require an additional hour. But yes, uh, before every release, I, I push, and I push basically daily. I cannot push, uh, so I, I didn't push without uh, all, all the test passes. I even uh, cannot uh, uh, publish an, a non-working thing because uh, at home internally I have some routers and and uh, <laughs> for sure uh, they are free routers and I use internally MPLS and I have uh, two root effectors and so on and uh, also my internet uh, at home lives in uh, in the VRF. <laughs> If it collapses because uh, a bug release, and I try to turn on uh, most of the features for sure <laughs> to have some more level of, of testing. So if somehow it collapses, then <laughs> I even cannot uh, open the door because it's an electromagnetic uh, door and uh, also uh, on a, uh, it leaves on a VRF in a, in a relay board. But the same goes uh, if it collapses, then... <laughs> I have no heating at all because it's also managed by another uh, relay board. <laughs> but I even cannot uh, publish uh, the bug image because uh, the servers are, are far uh, under the, the internet exit point here. So if the BGP or the IGP or the MPLS collapses here, then uh, then I, I, I don't have any uh, internet exit here. So, <laughs> so I, I physically cannot publish uh, a bad image, <laughs> we can say. I can publish buggy image, but, but uh, horribly buggy, I, I cannot. <laughs> I, I mean that uh, when the VRF not working or the MPS VPN is not working, it's impossible. <laughs> so basically, you're what they call eating your own dog food. You're using this yourself, and exactly. if you break it, you are the first person that knows that it's broken. Exactly. That's an honorable thing to do, especially, I mean... Given that this is now, as you mentioned, you know, it's being pushed into other NRENs, and there's some projects that are based around it. And sort of the, the other thing you touched on is that you've got a couple of compelling data plane avenues that you've gone down. You know, essentially, you've taken this Java application and you've scaled it up to a point where, you know, you can run it against, you know, very high throughput P4 hardware, correct? Yes. The physical box, uh, okay, the P4 currently is, is basically barefoot, uh, as far as I know. It's only barefoot who provides the, the chips. And I think, uh, Edge Core is, uh, is one of, uh, and store this is the other, another who provides uh, boxes. They provide a 6400 uh, gigabit interface. Uh, this is the bigger one for both, uh, Edge Core and, uh, Install this, but uh, as far as I know, they are already cooking uh, some something bigger. At least uh, on the Intel side, uh, they, they have now some Toshino 2 chips, and in the compiler, uh, there are some traces for Toshino 3. I don't know what they are cooking, but <laughs> I bet you they will double <laughs> the, the throughput, so I am, I am pretty interested. But back to the entrance. When it was root effector, and, and in a Hungarian engine, we had some other instances. Basically, they were queried by HTTP uh, API from the Itzinga and, uh, and the friends to see if the network is somehow okay. But uh, 
at that point, uh, I had a lot of show comments for everything, but they are not too user-friendly. I mean, uh, you, you saw the thing, uh, so they are not too well formatted. Okay, they are tables, but not the nice tables and not too much description, so you must uh, know what, what you are doing <laughs> to understand what, what you see in the show comments. I initially uh, kept in mind that uh, order the tables and then the if it's possible, let's make every show command look like a table. And, and internally, they are really just tables and, and they are formatted to the console. And uh, this has some consequences. First of all, it was very easy to have uh, streaming telemetry and netconf because <laughs> I have internally the structures formatted uh, in, in a very well uh, native, uh, we can say, classes. And the show commands uh, are just uh, formatted uh, by another class, but the data internally is kept uh, always in structure and uh, only the last one when it's uh, formatted to the user. But the other consequence was that uh, finally we realized that uh, when I became a part of an IGP or, or a BGP and uh, if I point the peering uh, border routers uh, via BMP to this box, then uh, I have a lot, lot of visibility to the network. Via the IGP peering, I see all the failing links in the network, even uh, within the bundles, because uh, then they change the metrics. And I can report these all to via streaming telemetry, or uh, finally I, I've got some some small servers specifically to Isinga, that is, uh, if Isinga points uh, to a pre-router instance, then Isinga thinks that it's a member of, of an Isinga cluster and uh, it can query uh, the whole network. And it's very, very funny because uh, in streaming telemetry, you can report the, the metrics and the updown states of the of the links quite easily. And uh, if it's the well-chosen uh, telemetry protocol, then uh, you can even push uh, when, when a change happens. But in Isinga case, it's very tricky because uh, that protocol have a, a user formatable text field that uh, describes the problem. When a uh, free author, uh, reports uh, some error at the Itzinga, then uh, it, uh, for sure it's, it's a table and it's a diff on, on the table, but uh, I had some tweaks to being able to resolve parts of, uh, sorry, columns of the table. So finally, an error is reported like uh, this router lost the connection to that router and that's it. And this is what uh, goes out uh, in an SMS or an email uh, to the operators. And this is what displayed on, on the single screen. And the fun part is that uh, finally they removed SMP from the whole core and uh, both from the single because uh, they are monitoring the whole network via a free router, uh, only one free router that reports the whole network, the whole IGP. With the BMP, so our peering routers all point, uh, all the external, uh, and for sure some IBGP sessions too. So report all the routing info to a very big uh, <laughs> free router instance. And that guy also can report the external peerings. So this is how finally we completely remove the SMP. And all the monitoring is done uh, with a, with a free router box that is queried by our Isinga. And the Isinga queries nothing else. There really nothing else. And uh, this is uh, what happens, slowly happens to one uh, another uh, entrance here to Europe and also to Jant. That is uh, <laughs> why I mentioned that uh, some free router instances uh, started to learn the IGP here and uh, slowly start to report 
at the moment they are not uh, trusting this platform enough to, to remove the SMMP, but <laughs> I think uh, it could happen sooner or later. We will see. Wait, so, okay. Again, there's a whole lot to take apart. <laughs> Based on the fact that you have like very well-defined structures inside this to house the data the router is consuming and, and making forwarding decisions on, you've got a robust streaming telemetry backend that you can use. And so let's take the details of the streaming telemetry and set them off to the side for a second, right? Because I got some questions about that too. But so you've got this streaming telemetry option. You peer the router or you create adjacencies with the rest of a network. It can then consume, you know, link state and, and other event data that's happening to the other protocols on other network elements. And you can stream those out from the streaming telemetry interface that you have. And you're saying that by doing that, there's a compelling way to disable SNMP. So you go from a poll model where you're going out and you're pulling every single device for all these different OIDs across the network to, I understand what the topology is. I understand what the actual protocols are doing and I can make real time alerts based on that. Is that a correct assessment? Exactly. This is what we are doing uh, in, in a Hungarian run. You're uh, actually doing this. Yes, we are actually doing this. With streaming telemetry, we can stream the whole topology. That is, uh, this router uh, have a connection to that router. And, and in this case, uh, the streaming telemetry data will be a zero or a one, depending if that connection is already reported by the IGP or not. And uh, when that connection goes down, then uh, I've got an RSA or an NSP uh, immediately. And, and uh, from this point, I, I can push the next uh, telemetry data, indicating uh, a zero here, test the system, that link is down. But from that, uh, you have uh, some some correlation done somewhere else, but uh, with the uh, Itzinga uh, integration, that is NRP protocol that is used here. But uh, I named Itzinga, but uh, as far as I know, it it is quite uh, well uh, uh, supported. So it's just a plugin uh, that reports uh, also zero or one. Basically, any monitoring protocol can consume this this info. For example, we have a Prometheus exporter also that uh, also can report and, and we have a dashboard uh, we have we already have a dashboard for ISIs in the OSPF and that indicates the number of the neighbors for the whole network from the IGP. And uh, that is uh, when you have a link down then on, on the dashboard. So we have two dashboards basically for an IGP. Uh, one is a simple up down and a red green uh, dashboard that is quite looks like good on a on a on a big <laughs> a big screen. But uh, we have uh, this uh, graph that is quite uh, a linear graph, but when uh, you had an outage, then you can spot, uh, even if it was a small one, by scrolling uh, with a 24-hour uh, view and scrolling down the network, you, you can spot uh, every outage you had because uh, it's not a linear here, but, but you have uh, some decrease and an increase after. So yes, we have streaming telemetry, Prometheus, single and, and we are open every, every protocol to, to support. But currently, this three uh, that we are using. And, and to reiterate, this is being done in production right now. So this is a supportable model. And it sounds like, given the tools, you're not reinventing a lot of these tools, right? Because I was going to ask about some of the collection mechanisms. But it sounds like you're just taking, you know, normal things that you would use for other stuff that's not quite as heavyweight as, say, you know, a huge management platform that's doing a lot of trap collection and polling and whatever else. 
like it's more of a systems based. Basically, in Firator, uh, these uh, reports are generated by sensors. So I, I coded sensors, uh, and uh, these guys produce some output and some uh, results indicating the error or a positive uh, thing that, okay, everything is, is fine here. And uh, these sensors can be exported via telemetry and Prometheus or Itzinga. And uh, when we are talking about uh, Prometheus, because uh, we use that guy also, and, uh, and Itzinga for sure, it's, it's not uh, too hard on the server part. Uh, that is, in case of Prometheus, you simply point uh, your Prometheus instance to, to a FreeRutter instance, and that's it that you need to do. Okay, in FreeRutter, you have to uh, copy-paste the sensors from the, <laughs> from the source tree, the corresponding sensors, for sure, because uh, if, if you use OSPF, then you have to paste the OSPF sensors. But that's it. And the same goes for Isinga. And uh, I have not too much uh, operational experiment with the InfluxDB, but the streaming telematic collector uh, was tested with that guy, and, uh, and at least uh, it uh, read immediately. When uh, it's a push model, it's interestingly a push model, and when you pointed free router to, to an influx, then uh, it, it started to get to the database immediately. Uh, from that, to have some alarms, then uh, it's your work. But the same goes to the Prometheus and, and Grafana thing, that is, uh, we do the reporting, but to have some alarms, I still suggest uh, Itzinga, because uh, it, it's ready. And uh, when you use uh, streaming telemetry or, or Prometheus and Grafana, then you have to make the, the decision on, on the server side that uh, when the network is failing and, and uh, what is the good condition. But when you use uh, the NRP protocol, then the freerouter can decide what is the good condition. It is easy for freerouter because it has the IGP topology and uh, when the number of neighbors decreases, then it can tell the Itzinga immediately that hey, it's a failing condition. So that's yeah, that reminds me a lot of how, you know, like a segment routing PCE, I'm f- pretty familiar with that model. So you've got a piece of software that actually understands the topology of the entire network, and then it can do things based on events that it sees. So it sounds like it's a similar concept, but I want to touch on a couple other things now, because there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of details here. So one of the things that came up when I was experimenting with this is that, well, first of all, we never really said, like, how do you use this thing, right? We talked about how it's got all these different interfaces and protocol support, and it's got NetConf and SSH and all of that. But, you know, an operational engineer is going to be interested in, like, how do I integrate this with what my normal workflow is? Now, whether that's, you know, you're going to probably use the NetConf interface if you're using automation for everything. But let's be honest, that's not as common as we wish it would be. What they're really going to be interested is in, how do I make it do things? And it's a very iOS-like, you very carefully worded this <laughs> in the on the page, that it's an industry standard CLI. Other companies have done the same thing. But, you know, it's essentially, you know, it's going to be, if you're familiar with Cisco, traditional iOS, it's conceptually very similar to that. So you SSH in, you know, show running config or whatever it is. You can see what it's doing. But the other thing that popped up, that actually threw me for a loop because I didn't read the documentation before I really started playing with it, so I was too excited, is that, and I love the way you've done this, by the way, all interface configurations have to be in a VRF. So if you're configuring an interface and it's not doing anything, it's because it's not in a VRF. So in normal operational models, you know, traditional networking, you're in, let's say, 
for those that aren't familiar with, you know, the service provider model of configuring VRFs and overlays and L3 VPNs, whatever your nomenclature is of choice, you essentially you have a base instance, and that base instance is the it's the hardware, right? You log in, it's just the bare metal, and everything on top of that can be an L3 VPN or a VPRN or whatever you want to put it. To be honest, it was a direct decision. So when, when I started it, uh, I saw that uh, I want uh, an MPLS box sooner or later. And at that point, uh, I have uh, thinking a lot about uh, what if I don't have a global at all? Is it, is it needed for an MPLS or, or not? And finally, fortunately, at that point, uh, there were some CSC configurations available. And I saw that, okay, uh, basically things could work in, in a VRF and it's not required to have a global. And finally, I decided that uh, I won't have a global because uh, it would be harder for me to have it. I mean that, uh, okay, I, I will have some VRFs and, uh, okay, then I have to replicate all the code uh, between the global and the VRF. I <laughs> No, <laughs> I won't. At that point, uh, I was thinking a lot uh, what and what if, and, and finally I came out with the idea that I, I don't have a global at all. Well, I like this, this model because... It basically forces compartmentalization and abstraction. You have to fully understand what you want your architecture to look like before you get started. And I think that's a mistake that gets made often because, you know, everybody's being forced to do more with less and whatever. And just like me, like I was just excited. I wanted to get this going, but it made me stop. I had to stop and think like, oh, okay, what do I really want this thing to do? Because I have to be able to put the interfaces in the right places. And it's easy once you understand, like, oh, you have to do that. It's like one command. Well, you got to create it, and then you got to create the VRF, and then you got to add the interfaces to it. But it's very simple to do. But having that be a requirement is a very powerful model because it forces those things. It, It makes you have to abstract everything. You have to understand, you know, what is where, because if you don't purposely put it there, it just does nothing. Exactly. Even you cannot configure an IP address to that uh, if, if you uh, didn't put it to a VRF. But thanks for the good words. And <laughs> I like that uh, from the, the user part, it's also a good idea to don't have a global. But uh, from the developer side, uh, it was also a good idea. And uh, as I saw the evolution of the iOS, I think that uh, they didn't uh, want this this global finally. Okay, now now they live in, but still have some things with it uh, when when it comes to the VRF and so on. But uh, in Firator, there is no such thing because uh, I really have no special VRF that is. For example, you can have an instance that uh, belongs to two MPLs, two different MPLs domains, and. <laughs> With the uh, hairpin uh, interfaces that is much like logical channels from Junipers. And with hairpin interfaces, you can interconnect the two and, uh, for example, you can redistribute between them. And the fun fact is that, uh, so the IGPs basically only do the parsing and the creation of the LSCs and the RSPs. And, uh, after it is parsed, that is, it's a root and it has some properties like segment routing index and so on. After it, the IGP simply calls the shortest pass cross, and that guy computes the topology and populates the tables, routing tables, and the MPLS, and so on. 
and uh, it has also some consequences. For example, when you redistribute between two MPS domains in FreeRouter, you can carry by default, you can carry the, for example, the label properties. That is, <laughs> if you do a mutual redistribution, then, uh, then it will work, uh, and it will work with SR passes and so on. <laughs> I've lived uh, in this situation because, as I told you, I run a, an MPLS home network here for sure with SR. And uh, uh, at the Hungarian engine, they also run an OSPF SR network. <laughs> and uh, at uh, some time, I, I redistributed the two just for fun on, on uh, one of uh, my, my small uh, PE boxes you know, on FreeRouter. It worked quite well. I had a, a full SR pass from home to, to any of the NRAN PE boxes. It was quite fun. That's fantastic. I think you and I may be the only people that I've ever talked to that have run MPLS inside their house. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for production traffic, not just the lab. And that's pretty cool. Okay, so, wow, there's just a whole bunch here. If somebody wanted to run this, it's all open source, right? I don't think we mentioned that. Like, this is, you can go to GitHub and you can look at the code. You can grab images right off of your website, which is amazingly retro. I love it. <laughs> and there's instructions for pushing it down into, into hardware. But if someone, like just a listener, has a home lab and they want to mess with this at, at their house, what's the easiest way that you would recommend Let's say they want to use it like you do. They want they want to make it their router at their cable modem or something, right? How would they go about doing that? Okay, first of all, before moving your uh, home network to an MPLS core, try it in, in a virtual machine and uh, get familiar with the syntax because, uh, as we discussed before, uh, the no global thing uh, could uh, make some headache for some guys. When you had the decision and you have some pieces around, even no advance, even five or ten year old advance will, will do gigabit for you easily with the pickup uh, forwarding engine. So it's not a big deal. But uh, with the newer and even a DPDK version, here a five years old uh, PC can do ten gigabit on DPDK easily. So when the decision I have done, then uh, <laughs> scroll down on the page and it have a one line installer. That will bring up a free router on Debian machine you have around. From that point, when it's installed, then you can configure your router to do it or not and, and have some MPLS if you want. Then you have uh, the config, then, uh, and you have some uh, NICs around that, uh, that have DPDK, then you can proceed with the next lines to turn on the, the DPDK part. That is the external forwarder. And from that point, uh, you have you have a higher speed uh, MPLS at home. Okay, so just theoretically, someone has a machine laying around that has a two NICs in it, running Debian that's reasonably new within the last five years. They can just type this line. It's very much like if you install. Uh, it's not even as complicated as if you install something like um, Homebrew on a Mac, right? There's no Ruby involved. It's basically just a shell script that you run, and it pulls free yes. router down, sets it up. You've got console access to it at that point. You got two interfaces and you configure it very similarly to, you know, a typical Cisco router with the caveats that we mentioned before. It supports all the things that you would want. That would be an easy way, I think, if you didn't want to run it in a VM. Like I set it up in my VM environment and just started playing with SRV6 as fast as I possibly could. But if someone were so inclined to want to do this, and this sounds like a fun weekend project and uh, maybe my oldest to sit down and do, 
it's totally doable. Like it's a very approachable project, I think is what really what I'm trying to get at here, right? Whether anybody's going to actually sit down at home and do it, who knows? But the point I'm trying to make is that like all the codes out there, it's approachable. It's not hard to understand. The documentation is reasonable for most of the things that people are going to do. And for those more complicated things, you know, maybe contribute some code or some docs to it if they're not there. But it's easy to get started, I guess, is really kind of the point I'm trying to make in a very long-winded way. Thanks for the good words again. So yes, basically the forwarding part is it's also not a new thing here because when Firater was able to pass uh, packets between two interfaces from that point, I run it here. And from that point, it's uh, routing my, my home network. Now we have some forwarding instances started to approach production. That is, so we are after two years in, in a giant project as, as discussed when, uh, when we had finally this data plane uh, uh, API uh, for the P4 switches and, and the DPDK and, and friends. And uh, about uh, two or three months ago, finally, uh, University of Mercia, it's a Spain university here. The guy, the one of the guys in, in the project, uh, uh, you know, works well there. And, uh, he decided that, uh, he will put a big instance in production. That is, they have some 5G and, uh, and network hub and, and so on. And, uh, it was routed by 700, uh, Cisco 700. It was time to switch it off. Uh, the thing is that, uh, it started that, uh, we had, uh, about 100 or, or a half a hundred uh, VLANs here serving. <laughs> this is very interesting because in that network club, uh, the employers also use uh, the Wi-Fi that is also by that guy. Also with the testing VMs and uh, other boxes around. <laughs> Finally, they replaced in three months that, uh, that old Cisco box with a DPTK, uh, free router combo. And uh, they are quite happy with it. As thought, it was uh, half hundred uh, VLAN interfaces around with uh, some uh, standby protocols uh, on them to be able to, to switch between the Cisco and the FreeRutter. But uh, finally, they slowly, uh, one by one, uh, moved the priorities to the FreeRutter. Then everything was okay, and my uh, months passed, and <laughs> finally they turned off the, the old uh, box. So when my, my home network, uh, we have this University of Mercia. That guy, I have uh, two 10 gig ports. One of them is the outside part and one of them is the internal network. And, and basically the guy, the FreeRutter and the TPDK data plane is routing between thousands of VMs and um, test equipments and so on in live in Mercia. And uh, another instance, a French uh, guy also from the project <laughs> also started some home network project. Uh, uh, it's an order uh, thing because uh, as soon as when the DPDK thing uh, arrived, uh, he was quite uh, impressed with it and, uh, and the results. And uh, he immediately jumped at the thing that is about a uh, one year old uh, uh, thing. And now he have also some, I think, uh, three or more uh, instances. And I think uh, one root effector. <laughs> He also uh, decided to turn off layer two at home, and uh, finally he got a, a full routed network. Yeah, I've seen some links to some projects about, you know, I think it's called the Rare Project. We'll put a link to it in the in the show notes. That I think it's probably the most approachable deployment that I've seen so far for you know just pushing out a piece of hardware with this running on it. But I'm glad we finally got to uh, 
like I said, there's a, there's a whole lot here, and I think we could probably talk for another hour about, you know, even deeper if we wanted to. But I think we should probably wrap it up. Very glad we finally got this scheduled. I mean, this has been about, what, three or four months in the making. We finally had a time slot where everything sort of came together. Just to sort of put a bow on this, if folks were interested in learning more about this, if they want to, you know, see what it's what it can do, if they want to look at the code, where would they go to do that? Okay, so basically, uh, as you mentioned, uh, from prewriter.net, you can reach all the all the info, the documentation, the tests, code, uh, the binaries, everything is linked uh, from that site. I think it's a good starting point. Okay, if people want to get a hold of you out on the internet, is there, do you have, other than your free router website, do you have like a Twitter or any other contact um, mechanisms? <clears throat> Yes, on the freerouter site, I think there there are some links uh, to my uh, homepage when you can find all the contact info for me, and uh, you will find some some other uh, things. Because uh, as I told you, that uh, it is a big giant project, and and some other uh, uh, folks work on on this. And uh, finally, <laughs> the documentation is done by Frederick. Thanks for it. For example, uh, uh, he is writing some some blog about it, and uh, yes, we, we run a Twitter account and, and so on. So yes, they are all linked from freerouter.net. Excellent, excellent. So as always, um, Nick Braulio, I can be found online. My Twitter is uh, at forwardingplane. Occasionally we'll blog on forwardingplane.net. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.